If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Romans chapter 15. We'll be looking at the first seven verses, picking back up here in Romans, continuing through verse by verse through this great book. Uh, some say the greatest book in the Bible. Let's read that together. Romans 15, 1 through 7. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those black Bibles on the end of the pew. It's on page 949 in that book. Um, And that Bible is yours to keep if you don't have a paper copy of the Bible for yourself already. Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We have here this this idea that's expressed in verse 6 is the idea of harmony, to live in such harmony with one another. Now, the the, the word that it uses there is uh, same-mindedness, getting on the same page with our thinking. But it is, harmony is not really a bad word for it. And when you think of harmony, you, you, you realize that there can be voices that would be dissonant with each other, that kind of overpower each other. And we experience that sometimes in the Wigginton household. And uh, it's kind of normal. We've got seven people there, and we're all pretty loud. And uh, if, if you have, I mean, it, it, it's rare that you, there's only one person talking when we're all in a room together. It's almost always at least two, sometimes three, sometimes seven who are talking. And the more people who are talking, the more each voice has to get louder to overcome the other voices. And then, and then before you know it, it can be pretty chaotic because that's just how it goes. But at the same time, boy, how different is it? Uh, say, for instance, if we all get out together one of our catechism songs that we all know and we all start singing it together. Maybe then we all have loud voices together, right, boys? We all sing that loud together, right? Yeah? Uh, but, but it's so different when, when we are on the same page and our voices are doing the same thing because we're, we're thinking the same thing, we've got the same words coming out of our mouths. What, what you have there is that kind of harmony that it's talking about. Now, some in our house, like Micah, actually know how to, to do harmony and that's great. Not all of us do, but, but the kind of harmony that it's talking about here is, is where we, we're getting on the same page. And that's the kind of beautiful thing that this is encouraging us toward here as God's people, as the church, that we would, would look and say, okay, yeah, there's all kinds of ways that we could try to overpower each other, overtalk each other, look at each other and say, my voice ought to be louder than your voice because fill in the blank, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's saying, hey, let's have harmony, and it's going to give us some instructions of how to do that as God's people, and ultimately it's based in Christ and his example of laying down his life for us, and that's the kind of love that we ought to show toward each other for the sake here of harmony and for the glory of God. So the first thing it's going to tell us here in the scripture is that this harmony among believers, harmony in the church, 
is an obligation of the strong. An obligation of the strong. It says there in verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Well, you know what? It, he actually says here, hey, there's, there's one group. There's one group in the church that has the obligation of doing this, and it's the strong. What does he mean by the strong? Well, if you've been around for the last few weeks, as we've been going through Romans 14, you know that he's been talking about different categories of strong and weak. And in particular, he lists three things where he says there are disagreements in your church, you church in Rome in the first century, there are disagreements among you where there are actually some people who are right and some people who are wrong. Those who have grown more in their faith come to a deeper and clearer uh, knowledge of the Christian faith are those who are strong and realize, for instance, that you are able in Christ to eat any kind of meat, that you don't have to keep the kosher laws, and you also don't have to ask about every single piece of meat that you go to buy in the market, was this or was this not sacrificed to an idol before I bought it? You, you can simply say, hey, as long as I'm not visibly participating in the worship of idols, as long as nobody has said to me, hey, eat this because Zeus is going to be honored by it, uh, you know, you stay away from that kind of stuff. But, but otherwise, you can just say, hey, God has provided me with this food. He's provided me with something good that I can eat for the glory of God to nourish me. And, and I can say, God, thank you for this. But at the same time, there are others who are within the church who were weak in this way who would eat only vegetables because they were terrified that maybe they would get a hold of something that had been sacrificed to an idol or maybe was in some other way unclean in their sight. And he says here, hey, you know what? There is a right answer and a wrong answer to this. The right answer is the strong answer, which is you are free to eat any kind of meat in Christ. Not to participate in the, the table of, of idols, not to, to go and embrace paganism, but to say, I don't have to worry about the background check on this meat. I can just say, thank you, God, for what you've given me. That's the right answer. That is the strong answer. The weak answer is, we better not eat anything from that market or else it might be tainted. But what he says here is, it's the obligation of the strong to bear with the failings of the weak. It's very similar to what he's been saying all the way through chapter 14, so some of this is going to sound similar to you, and I won't take too much time on that point because a lot of you guys have been around for all of those sermons, and, and you know this, but he brought up that point with, with the meat. Uh, he brought up the point having to do also uh, with observation of, of the various kinds of uh, holidays that were in the Jewish calendar, that there were some people who still felt that they needed to, to observe those. Not as though observing those was going to help them get their sins forgiven. If they thought that, then they're outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they thought, well, out of honor to Christ, I, I still need to, to keep Yom Kippur, etc., etc. And, and he says here, hey, that's the weak position. The strong position is to know that, that you, you don't have to do that anymore in honor of Christ. He's, he's come and he's fulfilled it in his death and burial and his resurrection and his, his ascension into the, the, the true temple of heaven 
where he serves and sits at the right hand of the Father. But, but he says here, okay, that's, that's another thing. And then there's also the issue of, of wine, that there were those who thought that they couldn't drink wine in any way or, or shape or form uh, because otherwise they, they felt that that might be sin toward God. We kind of talked about that two weeks ago, so I won't get into the details of all the things having to do with that. But he says that's the weak position. The strong position is to say, hey, we can... You know, we we can be like Jesus. <laughs> um, so, so you have these these examples, and there's other examples that that could come up today. But the general principle is: hey, there are some who are deeper, stronger, more mature, more knowledgeable in the Christian faith in the way that it's lived out in their lives. And then there are those who are less knowledgeable, more immature don't quite understand these things as well. They're trying hard to honor God, but they think that in their honor of God that they have to do these things that they're not actually under obligation to do. Well, our tendency as sinful flesh, as sinful humanity, even as sinners redeemed by Christ, if we were going to just let our you know, desires of our, <laughs> our sinful flesh go... We would think, well, I'm the strong one, he's the weak one, he needs to get over it. So there. Listen to what I have to say as the strong one. Don't be weak. Well, what's going to happen then? Well, all of chapter 14 has said, if you have that attitude, what you're going to do is you're going to be leading your brother into sin. You're going to be leading him to violate his conscience and even if he's technically allowed to eat that meat, if it's violating his conscience, then he's not doing it in faith, and whatever is not done in faith is sin. And so you don't lead your brother into sin. He's saying here, hey, you know what? Those of you who are strong, maybe while you're around those who are weak, just have a vegetarian diet, even though you don't have to, because it's more important to build up your brother in love than to just do everything that you're free to do. And that's the point here. He's, he's summarizing all of chapter 14 in verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. But what he says here is, hey, do you consider yourself to be strong in the faith? Do you look around and, and say, well, there are others in here who are weak in the faith, but I'm strong in the faith. He says, well, if you're considering yourself to be in that position, for one thing, you might be wrong. But if you're considering yourself to be in that position, he says, okay, then I have an obligation for you. Here's something that you owe to your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's to bear their burdens, not to expect them to bear your burdens. Not to be like the Pharisees who looked and thought that they were strong and would heap burden upon burden upon others. But to say, no, if I feel like that I have grown and understood things and am strong in the faith, my obligation is to take other people's burdens. It's what it says in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In that context, it's even talking about when there's clear sin on the part of others. How, how there needs to be a self-sacrificial kind of an attitude for us to go to one another and help each other out of that sin and into repentance. 
You could just say to yourself, well, I don't have that sin. He does. That's, my, that's not my problem. It's his problem. But this says, hey, it's an obligation on the strong. Go and help bear his burdens. Go and help bear her burdens. In our flesh, we wouldn't want to do that. But what did Paul do? Well, he says, we who are strong, he's, he's putting himself in the category of the strong, and he gives another example of how he did this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. He says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So we shouldn't have the arrogant attitude of, I'm the strong one. Everybody better get where I am. But instead to say, thank God for saving me by his grace, and I want to do what I can to help people get built up in Christ, to understand the gospel and be saved, and once they're saved, to help them grow in Christ with me. Now, one of the great things about this is that we, we, we tend to all think that our own position is the strong position, don't we? It's, it's, it's pretty rare for somebody to say, yeah, I, I take this position on, um, on meat sacrifice to idols or whatever it is. I take this position, but I'm pretty sure I have the weak position. And it's the other people who are strong. People don't really think that way, do they? If you've taken a position, you assume it's the strong position. And he says, hey, then bear with the failings of the weak. Bear with the failings of the weak. The way that he describes this is is he says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, verse 2. Not to please ourselves, but, but to build up our neighbor for his good, to build him up. This is Leviticus 19.18. It says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, Jesus said that that statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is a summary of the last six of the Ten Commandments, is a summary of of what he calls the second greatest commandment. He says, you know, you have the first greatest, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which summarizes commandments one through four. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what we're called to do here. When, when we look around and we see, hey, not everybody is spiritually mature yet, not to then say, what a terrible church, <laughs> but to say, hey, I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to help build up my neighbor, my brother, my sister in Christ, by, by not doing what's awesomest for me. But I, I, I want to set aside my desires, my preferences, for the good of my weak brother. That's what he says. He says, for his good, just like he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Just remember here, what is my neighbor's good? 
Some would say, oh, okay, we're going we're gonna to defer to each other. That means if, if my neighbor is of the opinion that sexual immorality is not sin, I'll let him stay in his sexual immorality. That's how some would interpret this. Is that for his good? No. This, is, this could be twisted to say, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to bear with the failings of the weak by just letting them remain in their blatant, obvious sin. That's not for his good. <laughs> you know, one, one of the ways that we work for our neighbor's good is, is if he is involved in something that is clearly sin, according to the Scriptures, that we want to lovingly go to our neighbor, having already established a foundation of love, but go to our neighbor and say, did you realize that this thing that, that's in your life is out of line with what the Scripture says? Knowing that he may not take that well at first, but, but we want to love our neighbor for his good. That, that, that's, that's what it says, for his good. But at the same time, Paul is more addressing in these chapters. He's not really addressing things that are, that are obvious sins or else there wouldn't, there wouldn't be a, a, the kind of discussion that he's talking about here. He's talking about things that have more to do with misunderstandings and, and differences in preference even sometimes. And he says, you know what? Lay aside what you feel to be your right in order to help your neighbor get built up, to build him up. Just like it said back in verse 19 of chapter 4, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. All right? So, if our neighbor says, you know what, I, I or our brother in Christ says, I, I, I think what's good for me, I think what's really, really good for me is that I... Um, take my Sunday mornings to, to just rest. My real rest is just to sleep in. Or my real rest is to get out on my fishing boat on the bay on Sunday morning. And, and, and that's for my good. Well, your neighbor, your, your brother in Christ is mistaken about what's his good in that situation. But there are other times when we say, hey, this thing is a little less clear. Sometimes we think to ourselves, hey, he tore me down. And because he tore me down, I'm going to make sure he gets what he deserves. That's ugly stuff. She tore me down, and so I'm not going to speak to her. That's the kind of stuff that makes a church not function in harmony with one voice giving praise to God. It's saying here, even in the situations where you're talking to somebody, your brother or sister in Christ, that your heart's initial feeling is not to build them up because they haven't built you up. To say, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bear with the failings of the weak for my brother's good, for my sister's good, to build them up in love. The next thing it says here is that this harmony is exemplified in Christ's sacrifice. Let's go to verse 3. It says, here's the reason for this. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, Christ did not please himself. We have to clarify here. That doesn't mean that Christ was operating for something other than his ultimate joy. In everything that Christ did, Christ was operating for his ultimate joy. The reason we know that is because it says so in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, 
where it says in, um, in that passage that he uh, endured the cross despising the shame, but that he did it for the joy that was set before him. Okay? So when it, when it says Christ didn't please himself and, himself and that we shouldn't please ourselves, this doesn't mean that we lay aside any hope that we will ever be happy again. <laughs> because Christ was aiming for his ultimate joy in redeeming his people, the church, to present this bride as this pure and spotless bride to himself, this church. And as we lay aside our own preferences, as we bear with the failings of the weak, that's ultimately in front of us. I am ultimately going to have joy because of seeing my brothers and sisters in Christ built up in love, growing in Christ, sanctified, made more and more spotless as part of the spotless bride of Jesus. We want to see that. It's going to be to our ultimate joy. But what he's getting at here is that as we're aiming for those ultimate joyful purposes of God, that there is going to be a temporary setting aside of what would make us, you might say, happy in the moment. I don't think Jesus would have said to anybody, boy, I sure am happy to be going to the cross. But he did do it for the joy that was set before him. Rather than pleasing himself, which pleasing himself would have been something like calling down legions of angels to strike down those Roman soldiers who wanted to nail him to the cross. Rather than doing that, what did he do? Well, it says... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9, where it says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. What it's saying that happened with Christ, it's predicting this in Psalm 69 and, and quoting this here in Romans 15. And Psalm 69 is quoted elsewhere in the New Testament to speak of, of Christ's sacrifice for our sins as well. It's saying those who hated God the Father carried out that hatred on God the Son by nailing him to the cross. The reproaches of those who reproached God the Father fell on God the Son as he went to the cross. Even many people who claimed to love God, the whole council of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees condemning Christ to death, claiming to love God, and yet when he appeared before them in person, sending him to crucifixion. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. When Jesus did this, he was doing it for us as well. Part of the reproaches that he had, that I think are the reason why the connection is made here in Romans 15, are reproaches that had to do with God's willingness to pursue those who were weak and lowly. It says in Matthew eleven nineteen that Jesus, because he pursued sinners that he had this reproach said against him. Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, because he was willing to go to tax collectors, to prostitutes, to other kinds of notorious sinners, and to sit down with them, to sit down with people like the woman at the well, a notorious sinner. Because he was willing to sit down with them, call them to repentance, 
tell them who he was, offer them forgiveness and life in, in himself, as the world looked on, they would say, he's bad. He associates with the lowly, with the sinners. How dare he? That's the kind of reproach that he was bearing when he went to the cross for those sinners. And when I say those sinners, who am I talking about? I'm talking about me, and I'm talking about you who have trusted in Christ. If you think to yourself, oh, well, that's a different category of sinner over there, the lowly ones that Jesus associated with, then you're saying to yourself, I have no need of a physician. I am already well. I don't need Dr. Jesus to heal me of my sins. But we are sick and dying in our sins apart from Christ, and he has come to bear the reproach. Ultimately, what this is saying is that he has come to die for us. He didn't have to do this. He came and made himself low. He poured himself out. He humbled himself, as it says in Philippians 3, even to the point of death, or Philippians 2, even to the point of death on a cross for us. And of course, now he's highly exalted, praise God. But what did he do? He went through that humiliation. And the lesson here is hey, if Christ would do this for us, then we ought to take an example from that in how we would treat. And, and love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now we have to be careful here because this is one of these passages that is, is teaching the death of Christ as an example to us, but we want to be careful to know that that's not the only thing that the death of Christ is about. Uh, if, we, if we looked at Christ on the cross and we said the whole point of Christ on the cross is to be an example to us, well, then we'd all be doomed because we're never going to be able to follow the full example of Christ. In fact, we're not supposed to in certain ways because Jesus came to be the propitiation for our sins. And you and I can never be the propitiation for somebody's sins. There, there are things that Jesus did and intended and accomplished at the cross that are simply where we take our hands off and say, praise God, that cannot possibly be the work of mere man. That is the work of the God-man, Jesus Christ for us sinners. Some examples of this, Romans 3, verses 23 through 25 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. You see, when we look at Jesus dying on the cross in our place for our sins to turn away the wrath of God that we were righteously under for those sins, when we look at that, it doesn't say, okay, now you go be the propitiation for somebody's sins. No, it says this, the, the proper response to that, according to that verse, is to receive it by faith. That's the proper response, to put our trust in this person of Jesus Christ to receive his forgiveness by faith in him. It says in, in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So we can never follow the example of Christ in the way of being a mediator between God and men. That is only in the hands of Jesus. But at the same time, there are aspects of Jesus' humiliation, his condemnation, his death on the cross for us. There's aspects of that that the Bible does command us to take as an example to imitate. 
Jesus says this in Matthew 20, verse 26. He says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or 1 John 3.16, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's what he's teaching here. He's saying, do you think that you're the strong one? Well, maybe you are, but look at what Jesus did. Was Jesus the strong one? Yes. Was, was Jesus in some kind of a position where he just had to go and lay down his life for us because he was, he was just the kind of person who ought to be crucified? Of course not. G- Jesus sitting on the throne of heaven from the very time that he made heaven. And he voluntarily came and put himself underneath us who were so weak that we were literally God's enemies in our sin. And he loved us as his enemies. And he died for us to redeem us. And he rose from the dead and he brings us along with him for eternity. And he's saying in this passage here, and in those that I just just quoted as well, he's saying, take that kind of an attitude. Don't take the attitude of putting yourself on this high pedestal and saying, I'm glad that I, I, I recognize I'm standing on a high pedestal literally right now. It's just where I preach from, okay? Uh, but don't take this position of saying, well, I, I'm so strong and these people are so weak and, and I don't have to do anything for them. Look what Christ did. He laid aside his privileges in order to save us, and we can lay aside our privileges. We can lay aside our right to eat meat and sit around and have a vegan meal. (laughs) We, We can lay aside our right to this or to that or our preferences about music or our preferences about whatever. I just say that because that's a big thing in so many churches that tears churches apart. And, and we can say, hey, I don't have to have everything the way that I think I should have it. I can actually set aside these things in order to bear with the failings of the weak. Not pretending that they're not weak, but bearing with them, bearing their burdens. We need to have a love for one another that is like Christ's love. That's a love that's gracious. It's not looking for who most deserves it or who can repay it. It's a love that's self-sacrificial, not looking for the easiest path, not looking for recognition, at least not in this life. It's a love that's not expecting anything in return because Jesus didn't say, okay, I died on the cross for you. How much are you going to pay me? You owe me one. No, he doesn't say that. He paid it all. But it is a love that's set on that eternal reward, just as Jesus has done this sacrifice on the cross with the joy set before him in mind. We can say, hey, I'm not going to have my way, but I have a joy set before me in mind. Now he says here, as it is written... Now, of course, we already read what was written, but in verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Now this seems almost like a tangent, doesn't it? He just quoted a verse from the Old Testament. And how many verses have been quoted from the Old Testament already, even the book of Romans? A ton. And he just kind of says here, almost as an aside, you would think, well, I quoted the Old Testament because it's useful. But I think we're going to see as, as we go to this tangent that it ends up not being all that tangential. But, but let's do take it. I, I know this might sound like, like we've been talking about love within the church, and like we're going to go to a totally different topic for a second. But I think as we get to verse uh, 6, verse 5 and verse 6, we're, we're going to see that this all comes together as one thing, okay? So the, the, the topic that he goes to in verse 4 is the benefit that we have as New Testament, New Covenant believers in reading and knowing and obeying and loving the Old Testament. That's, that's what he's saying. These things that were written in former days, that's the Old Testament Scriptures, the books that come from Genesis to Malachi, the 39 before you get to the 27 of the New Testament. Now, there, there are some who would want to look at those books and say, well, they're, they're not all that useful anymore. You know, there was a famous heretic in the early days of the church who, who, um, who thought, well, you know what, we... That Old Testament God, he's, he's like the God of wrath. Uh, he's the mean God. And in the New Testament, we get the, the nice, gracious God. And so we don't really need the Old Testament anymore. Maybe we can read it just like as a historical kind of thing, but, but just the New Testament is what we want to go to now because that's where we find our love and our mercy and our grace. And in fact, that kind of teaching hasn't disappeared today, unfortunately. You get guys like Andy Stanley who would say, well, we need to get unhitched from the Old Testament. That's his quote. He loves to say that. And over time, it's become more and more clear that there's reason why he wants to take away scriptures because he's veered so far off. And we pray for his repentance. But as we look at what the actual Bible says, if you're going to follow what the New Testament says, it says right here, you need to be listening to the Old Testament. You, you, you need to know that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. It's very similar to what he says in 2 Timothy 3.16, where he says all Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. You and I need the New Testament and we need the Old Testament because it's all God's Word. Um, I think it's really beneficial, if you don't already, to have a Bible reading plan that includes New Testament and Old Testament. Now, if you're doing a Bible reading plan of any kind, praise God. If you're not doing a Bible reading plan of any kind, you know what? Do you stop and take time to eat lunch? you can stop and take time to take in the Scriptures. You can do it. You can feed on God's Word. But I love these plans where you're, you're going to be, maybe, maybe uh, January 1st, it's going to be Genesis 1 and Matthew 1. And you're in the Old Testament and you're in the New Testament because you're, you're seeing just the beauty of how all of this comes together. And, and it says here in this verse, hey, those Old Testament Scriptures were written for our instruction where it says our instruction, you might just stop for a second and put your own name right there. 
whatever was written in those former times, the Old Testament was written for Daniel's instruction. And what does it say is going to be the result of that? That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. He says that, that as we go to the Scriptures, as we go to the Old Testament, Psalm 69 and all the rest of it, that He's going to help us to have endurance in our walk with Christ. There's something empowering there to help us make it to the end. As we go to the Old Testament Scriptures, we're going to have encouragement in various ways because we're going to see the good news of Jesus Christ shining through on every page there. We're going to see it pointing us to our Savior. We're going to see the instructions from God that are good. We're going to see the warnings of examples of people who absolutely wrecked their lives and their faith and say, I want to get away from that. And we're also going to see the encouragement of those who walked faithfully with Christ even before they knew His name. There's going to be an encouragement there. And it says, so that we might have hope. And when it says hope here, I think he's using hope in the same way that he used at the beginning of chapter 5, which is assurance of salvation. To know that we are on the side of Christ and headed to heaven. So he says... Pick up your Bible and use it because God is going to give you endurance and encouragement and hope. Now, what what does that have to do with our building each other up in love, with our self-sacrificial love toward each other? Well, we're going to see that as we get to verse 5. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement... Now, where did he just say that the endurance and encouragement come from? The Scriptures. The God of endurance and encouragement is the God who is going to give you endurance and encouragement in His written Word, the Scriptures. And this God of endurance and encouragement, may He grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what this is saying? It's saying, saying a few things. One, it's, it's giving us a prayer we can pray for each other. These verses, verses 5 and 6, are one of the scriptural prayers for each other that comes up periodically at the top of our prayer list. This is one of those prayers that you can pray for somebody in church when you don't have a prayer request on the prayer list for that person in church. Even when everything's going fine and they haven't lost their job and they haven't gotten cancer and all these things, you can pray for that person with this prayer May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another that in in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's something that we ought to look, and and those, those prayers for each other ought to pop out of the page to us, I think. But how does he say that, that God is going to accomplish this as we pray for this? Well, it's through that endurance, through that encouragement that we get from the Scriptures. How are you going to get strong? How are you going to become one of those who has the obligation of bearing the burdens of the weak? How are you going to grow in your faith so that you can, can, can lay aside your preferences in order to build other people up in their spiritual maturity in Christ? You're going to get it from God. You're going to get it from His endurance. You're going to get it from His encouragement. And it's going to come through the Scriptures. So let me just sum this up by saying 
Be in the Bible, and God is going to make you stronger in your faith, and he's going to make you more and more able in doing that to serve those around you and help build them up in their faith. And we pray that God would do that more and more. What's the result of that that he says? Well, it it will overflow in worship. Verse 6, that together you may with one voice, with this harmony, with this same-mindedness, with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And by agree, he's using the same word as harmony. It's hard to, hard to bring that out in the English Bible. It's the same word. That all of you have this same-mindedness together that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. How does he say that's going to happen? He says it's in accord with Christ Jesus. Jesus had this mind, and he calls us to have this mind. Another place he talks about it is Philippians 2.2. That by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, that we should do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus had that mind that he was going to count others as more significant than himself and die for our sins. You're never going to die for anybody's sins, but you can have the mind of Christ to count others more significant than yourself and to love people accordingly. When that happens, he's going to give us that same-mindedness. That same-mindedness, again, coming through having our minds together in this same book, that we would have this harmony that would overflow in glory to God with one voice. What's more important? Is it more important that those who are strong in their faith show that they are strong in their faith so that everyone knows that they are strong in their faith? Or is it more important that we glorify God? It is so important. This is the point. We have temptations in our flesh to say, you know what, even as I walk into the place of the worship of God, I want to stand out as strong. And this is saying, let's get into the Bible and let's consider Jesus so that we would walk into the place of worship with the mind of not caring what anybody thinks about us, but instead with one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says we're to be about, is the glory of God together. As we, as we do this, there's a call here for us to, to build each other up, to be of the same mind, and he says in verse 7, to welcome one another as Christ Jesus has welcomed you for the glory of God. You know, that had something to do with church membership. It has, has something to do with receiving each other in to be part of the body of Christ, to say, yes, we have actual, real fellowship with each other. 
welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, and what's the purpose for the glory of God? I, I, I want to know, maybe, maybe you are one of those who is a persistent visitor. Maybe you're a persistent visitor to First Baptist Church of Matawan, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but through all the times that we've said, we're going to have a membership class, it hasn't come together, or you haven't wanted to, there's more than one of you in this room, so I'm not just talking to you, whoever you are getting red in the face. But I want to know, why, why are you holding off from welcoming one another? Why are you holding off from committing to these people around you? It's glory to God when you're willing to do that. And there needs to come a time in the life of a believer when you either commit to the particular local church that you are attending, or you move on to a church that you can commit to. And you need to consider that. How will I self-sacrificially welcome my brothers and sisters in Christ and actually come into this covenant relationship with them? Church members, I'm curious... Is there another church member that you know that you're not at peace with? This happens. Maybe it's somebody that you had a personal disagreement with. Maybe it's somebody who wants the church to do different things than you want the church to do. Maybe it's your own spouse. The Bible tells us to seek peace and pursue it. The Bible tells Euodia and Syntyche in the church at Philippi to agree in the Lord, to set aside their differences in order to have the mind of Christ together. And if you are in a position of withholding peace that you ought to have with a brother or sister in Christ, if you're in a position of saying, that's not going to happen, we can sit on opposite sides of the room and attend different church programs and things will be okay. Do you know what is happening according to this passage? You are disregarding the glory of God that would come if you are willing to make peace, to self-sacrificially love one another so that you can with one voice in harmony glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make peace, seek peace and pursue it. To other church members, maybe you don't have those kinds of struggles with fellow church members, but maybe the Lord would call you to be a peacemaker, to see those situations where maybe there's two brothers in Christ, two sisters in Christ, a brother and a sister in Christ, who are not at peace and neither one of them cares. And maybe God would call you to step in. That same passage in Philippians where he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The next verse says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. He says to those who have no beef with anybody, maybe you need to step in and be a peacemaker to those who are not on the same page in harmony with the glorification of God. Jesus actually said this. You've heard this before. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's a good thing. Maybe the Lord would call you to that position for his glory. What about unbelievers? Maybe you're here today and you have not changed your mind about your sin and about God. Maybe what that means is you haven't repented. You haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. Well, if that's the case... 
I want you to see the kind of love that Jesus has poured out on the cross. Willing to bear reproaches for you. Willing to go and to die. To bear the wrath of God for you. If you will turn and believe. It's offered freely. And I also hope that you'll see that there's something of the love of God reflected in these people that are here right now. Maybe if you're an unbeliever and you were planning to just get right out of here after church and and go do something else as fast as you can and forget about all of this, maybe you'd be willing to stay for the coffee fellowship afterward. And maybe at the coffee fellowship, you'd be willing to consider this question, are these people really the hypocrites that I've been calling them my whole life? Or is there something different about these people? I'm willing to say this about Christ's bride, the church, where there is a love demonstrated among this people that you don't find in the world. And and I hope that you'll look at that, and I hope that that will be something that God would use to draw you to the source of it all, which is the love of Jesus Christ that we have received 100% free and graciously Receive that. Look to Jesus for the salvation from your sins. Come to Christ, and He is not going to turn you away. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for what You've done for us in Christ. We thank You for this self-sacrificial love that Jesus has done for us. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to be self-sacrificially loving for one another. God, I pray that You would grant us, as First Baptist Church of Matawan, to have endurance and encouragement to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that if there is discord, uh, disharmony between church members, even if they're married to each other, Father, I pray that for the sake of the glory of your name and the beauty of the gospel, I pray that you would grant them to have that endurance and encouragement and peace and harmony together. Lord, help us to be those who would make peace, to seek peace, to pursue it. But above all, help us to be those who would set your glory above our own. Lord, I pray for those who are outside of Christ. Help them to see the love of Jesus here and to receive it in faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.